First, he says, to set an example in our speech. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Colossians 4.6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, He deceives his heart, and that person's religion is worthless. And the psalmist says in Psalm 19, 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In countless places throughout the book of Proverbs, we're told how life-giving godly speech is and how deadly ungodly speech is. A second way Paul tells Timothy, to set an example, is in conduct or in the way in which we live our lives. We're kind of doing a a bit of a a survey of Scripture on what God's Word says on each of these. So Paul prays for the believers in Colossians 1.10 that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Likewise, Jesus says in John chapter 14, Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's evident that a a life of godly conduct is simply a worshipful response of obedience to Christ. Third, Paul says to set an example in love. This is agape love, a kind of generosity and devotion that we can only have for our fellow image bearers because of the result of God's love for us. John, 1 John 4.19 tells us we love because he first loved us. This kind of God love is detailed for us in 1 Corinthians. Familiar passage. It's read often at weddings, and, and it should be. It ought to be, but it also ought to be read in the household of God a lot more often than it is. I won't read the entire description of love from 1 Corinthians 13, but we get a summary of this kind of love in verses 4 through 7 where it says love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Fourth, Paul says to set an example in faith. This refers to, I think, at least three things. The first is believing God. Jesus says in John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Second, contending for the faith. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And third is faithfulness to the gospel. Paul, again, in Colossians 1, in verse 23, says, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And the final way in which Paul exhorts Timothy to lead by example is in purity. Remember, this letter was written to Timothy in a time when false teachers were trying to creep into the church. And Paul's concern with purity is that a life shaped by the gospel, produces godly lives. These false teachers were trying to bring in all these strange teachings 
from Gnosticism that, that endorsed impure lifestyles. So if Timothy were to go after those Gnostic teachers and abandon the holiness to which God calls his people, he would tear down with one hand what he built with the other. But as Psalm 119.9 asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to God's word. Amen? So are you beginning to get a pretty clear image of what life in Christ looks like from this brief description of how we are to set examples for one another? Paul is commanding Timothy to confirm what he teaches with the way he lives. And this idea is repeated later in verse 16. Now, remember, we can't do these things to get God's love. It just doesn't work that way. We can't do it. We do them because God loves us in Christ. This is a response of worship, not an effort to earn God's favor. It's easy to get that backwards, and it will always get us into a world of hurt because it undermines the gospel. Getting it right is exactly why Paul goes on in verse 13 to tell Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Well, we just read the Scriptures publicly here. That's a a practice that's mostly lost in our culture, the public reading of Scripture, but one that I think we should seek to reclaim and reestablish. It's abandoned, I think, mostly due to the fact that most of us have four or five Bibles at home on our shelves. We don't necessarily read them, but we have them. And so we think, what's the purpose of getting together and hearing someone else read the Bible to me? Well, public reading of Scripture served two purposes. It showed the authority of the writers as God's messengers. And it showed that what God revealed in Scripture is intended to be understood by ordinary believers. You didn't need to be a pastor or a seminary-trained professor to understand the gospel. But Paul goes beyond only reading Scripture and tells Timothy to devote himself to exhortation and teaching. Some of you may know I was um, uh, the worship leader on staff at a church in Kansas years ago, and I'll never forget we had a, a guest speaker coming in as the keynote speaker for a men's retreat. And in the worship guide, a typo had slipped through and said, come join us as Ken seeks to extort us. The word was intended to be exhort. And there's an important difference between extortion, which is a criminal act, and uh, exhortation. So exhortation comes from the Greek word paraklesis. And I'll be honest, I don't know Greek well enough to just throw Greek words and definitions around, but this is a helpful one, and here's why. Paraclesis comes from the same root word that Jesus used in John chapter 16, verse 7, where he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The word here in John translated as helper is parakletos which means an advocate. In the language that the Bible was written in, the New Testament was written in, this is a legal term, which means someone who comes alongside as an aide. 
So what is my job as a preacher? According to 1 Timothy chapter 4, my job is to be a helper and an advocate, but I'm not the Holy Spirit, right? Thank you. That was good. (laughs) That was actually kind of a quick response, like, how bad am I, guys? But although I'm not the Holy Spirit, and I'm clearly not, uh, it is my job to come alongside you to exhort, to help, to advocate. And what am I advocating for? I'm advocating for the fact that you cannot reconcile yourself to the Father. Only Christ can do that for you. What's the job of the Holy Spirit? He points us to the completed, perfect work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. That's what our job as exhorters, as helpers, as advocates is. So the picture we're seeing painted here in 1 Timothy is that the job of the pastor is to come alongside his fellow believers and show them Jesus. Not just in word, in word, but not just in word, but also by modeling Christ-likeness and utter dependence upon Christ. This is what the ministry of teaching and exhortation is mainly about. And I'll only spend uh, just a moment on Paul's command to Timothy to devote himself to teaching, since teaching isn't such a foreign concept to us as exhortation might be. I said a moment ago that one of the implications of the public reading of Scripture is that the ordinary believer is capable of understanding God's revelation of himself through Scripture. So why would it be considered necessary to have an elder whose primary way of serving is by teaching? If we can all open the Bible and understand it, why have someone on staff or a lay elder who is committed specifically to the ministry of teaching? If you've considered this question before, I think it's a good one. First and most importantly, I think the fact that some of us are more prone to teaching or preaching shows the diversity of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us in verse 4, now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. So if someone says to you, I don't need some preacher telling me what the Bible says, just gently remind them that if that particular preacher or teacher is in fact in Christ, they're filled with the same Holy Spirit you are. And it's possible that the Holy Spirit has uniquely gifted that person to teach. The 1689 London Baptist Confession is one of our historic documents of faith, and it puts it well when it says, some things in Scripture are clearer than others, and some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. It's evident here in 1 Timothy that Paul's protege was given this kind of gift. And Paul goes on in verse 14 to encourage Timothy to be sure to keep on using that gift. So look with me at verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid hands on you. We're not entirely sure exactly what the gift that Timothy received was. It was probably something in the arena of preaching and teaching. But there are three other elements in this verse that I'd like us to consider. One is that Paul tells Timothy not to neglect the gift by letting it go unused. The second is that the gift was given. If something is given, there had to be a giver. In this case, of course, the giver is the Holy Spirit, as we saw a moment ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And third, it was given when the elders laid hands on Timothy. So I want to spend a few minutes on a couple of these points 
before we look at the last two verses on our text this morning. Let's take a moment to consider what Paul means when he tells Timothy not to neglect the gift. In 2 Timothy, one, one letter over, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, Paul compares Timothy's gift to a spark and tells him to fan it into flame. So with this image in mind, you may see here at Grace Family Fellowship in the coming months and years, young leaders being given opportunities to exercise their gift. I've got good news and I've got bad news. The bad news is it's not a flame yet. The good news is the spark came from the Holy Spirit. Amen? So it's our job. We have a responsibility to pray for our young people as they seek to fan that spark into a flame, to support them, and to encourage them as they study and put their gifts into practice. Now, the thing about being gifted is you can't just rely on merely being gifted. I've seen some of the most gifted people in the world fail at what they're gifted in because they thought they didn't need to try. They thought the spark would do the heavy lifting, and so they never tried very hard to fan it into flame. I've been guilty of it before. When a lot of things in your life come easily, and then you encounter something that doesn't come as easily, at least for me, the temptation is to just quit trying. An extended member of my wife's family saw this when he was a third baseman for Philadelphia's minor league team. His observation was that the most naturally gifted players didn't try as hard as those who weren't as naturally talented. And so the ones who weren't as naturally gifted progressed further and faster than the ones who had more potential. I don't think Paul could have quite imagined a baseball analogy but it was this kind of idea that he had in mind. The gifts you have are from God, and we have a duty to take those gifts and to strengthen ourselves in them. And I want to encourage you with this. Each person who is in Christ has a spiritual gift. It's not just me and Rich and Pastor Mark and some of our elders that have a spiritual gift. Every single one of you sitting here today who is in Christ has a spiritual gift. They're not all public, and that's okay. But please consider if and how you are fanning into flame the gift of God. Are you practicing your gift, as we'll see in verse 15? Before moving on, though, the second part from verse 14 I want to focus on is that Timothy's gift wasn't given in isolation. He didn't come to the elders and say, hey, look, guys, I'm super talented, so you need to make me a pastor. Paul and his fellow elders prayed, they laid hands on him, and the Holy Spirit spoke through prophecy. So if someone comes to the elders of our church and says, you have to make me the next worship leader, you have to make me the next pastor, you have to make me the next whatever, because I'm gifted. I I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with letting us know that you're interested. But what is wrong is assuming or presuming upon that gifting. Because if it's not confirmed by the leaders that God has placed in our lives, pretty good chance we might have it wrong. Have you ever seen those people on the talent shows it was more so in the early years of uh, American Idol. They'd come on, and uh, William Hung was kind of the classic example. 
Uh, you know, I've not taken any professional singing lessons. And, and there's, there's a part of it that wants to go, like, oh, I hope this is really good. And then he starts singing. And, oh, it's horrible. It's just horrendous. And he has no idea that he's that bad. And we do that sometimes with what we think are our spiritual gifts. Sometimes we think that we have a gift just because it's something that we, we have a desire for. I'll tell you something. I love the ministry of the word. I love leading in our corporate singing when I have the privilege of doing that. But it doesn't come easily. It, it takes a lot of preparation and hard work. And so if you're sitting out there thinking, gosh, I wish I could preach, maybe God's put that desire in your heart. Exercise that gift in, in different settings. Every opportunity you get in Sunday school, in nursing homes, exercise that gift. And allow the godly leaders that God has placed in your life to confirm that gift before you presume upon it. So practically speaking, if we're looking for some kind of application for today, it might look something like this. Since the purpose of spiritual gifts is the building up of the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit normally will give gifts in and through community. Okay? You may recall that I've broken down the etymology of the word community here before. Very simply, it just means common unity. So if you believe you have a particular gift, you can ask yourself these two questions. Is it being confirmed by the leaders God has given me, and am I using it for the edification of Jesus' church rather than using it for my own personal benefit? If the answer to either of those questions is no, then you may want to prayerfully step back and reflect on what you may consider to be your gift. Big emphasis on prayerfully. If the answers to those questions are yes, then verse 15 has some ongoing wisdom for us, as it certainly did for Timothy. Look at verse 15. Paul says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Does anybody have a New American Standard Bible? Anybody reading this in the NASB? I love the way the New American Standard translates the first part of this. Take pains with these things. I hate using cliches, but come on. No pain, no gain. Right? (laughs) I say I hate using cliches. There's probably a dozen of them scattered in this particular sermon. That one's not in my notes, though, just so you know. It was, and I took it out. So we're not just talking about occasionally giving a passing thought to how well or if we're executing the gifts that God has given. We're talking about devotedly giving ourselves to these things, to setting an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. I know Rich, you'll know, uh, any other guitar players in the room, you'll know what this turn of phrase means, take pains. When someone first picks up a guitar to learn, their fingertips are in for a surprise. Think about it. Pushing the soft tips of your fingers against metal strings for an extended period of time. It hurts. It causes pain. But eventually, when you do it long enough, with enough consistency, it no longer hurts to play. It becomes a joy. And instead, as our passage tells us, because of the pain of immersion... Those watching will see our progress. 
Has anyone seen that with someone learning an instrument? Terrible at first. Maybe in my case, they're still terrible. But you start to see progress. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy. The reason to immerse yourself in these things is so that others will see your progress. So beyond the illustration of playing an instrument, the purpose of taking pains and immersing ourselves in our God-given spiritual gifts is so that others can see through us what it looks like when God gets a hold of someone and changes them. God gets the glory, not us, right? You might say, oh, I don't want anyone looking at me. Trust me, I understand where you're coming from, but hear me. When we immerse ourselves into fanning into flame our spiritual gifts and people notice, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ and his glory. Let your light shine before men so that they will see your good deeds, so that they will see your Father in heaven. That's the purpose. That middle part matters, but it's not the purpose. The purpose isn't so that people will see our good deeds. It's so that they will see our good deeds, so that they will see our Father in heaven. Don't miss this. If God uses you to strengthen his people, it's false humility to act like you weren't used. In fact, it might be a veiled form of pride to act that way because what you may inadvertently be saying to people looking on is that you're afraid that you're so magnificent that people won't see Jesus. It's not going to happen, guys. Isaiah 42.8 tells us that he will not give his glory to another. Even the most gifted person in the world cannot take glory away from God, no matter how hard they might try. Did God use Moses? Did God use David? Or Rahab, Abraham, Mary, Peter. In none of these examples is Christ's glory diminished because he used these people. The very fact that he used these people, some of them more flawed than others, but all of them in need of Jesus, displays his kindness and mercy and brings incredible glory to him alone. And it wouldn't only be false humility, it would frankly just be weird of us to say, don't mention those people, only talk about God, don't talk about Moses, don't talk about David or Paul. Well, it was God who decided to use those people. And do you think that when we share about the shortcomings or the successes of God's people in Scripture that God doesn't get the glory? No, he gets the glory. Moses doesn't get the glory. David doesn't get the glory. Rahab doesn't get the glory. God gets the glory. Look with me at our last verse. Verse 16 says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. A preacher's life, wrote the Thomas, uh, Thomas Brooks, uh, an English Puritan, preacher's life should be a commentary upon his doctrine. His practice should be the counterpane of his sermons. Heavenly doctrines should always be adorned with a heavenly life. 
As I said at the beginning of the sermon, I won't do so perfectly. But as one who's been entrusted to the office of pastor, you should at least be able to watch me try my hardest to prove in my life what I preach with my lips. Sam Storms is a, a pastor from Kansas City who's currently serving in Oklahoma, and he writes this, Orthodoxy by itself proves nothing. Is having right beliefs and sound scriptural theology important? Absolutely. But merely asserting in your mind and giving intellectual assent to the truth of what the Bible says does not in itself mean you're in good standing with God. Faith certainly involves believing truths about God and sin and Christ and the cross. Listen to this. But if you don't actually and authentically trust and rely upon and cast your hope in who Christ is and what he has done, your theology amounts to nothing. Storms concludes this, the way we can know that you have authentically trusted in, relied upon, and put your hope in Jesus is whether or not this so-called faith gradually and incrementally transforms how you live. Remember this, the standard of living is so that others will see Timothy's progress for the purpose of imitating him as he imitates Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. So is our so-called faith gradually and incrementally transforming how we live? This is what Paul's talking about when he tells Timothy, by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He isn't saying that your being forgiven is dependent upon my personal holiness, okay? Instead, he's showing that one of the means, one of the primary means that God uses in saving his people is the example of pastors and elders. This is why it's important for us to have a clear understanding of those biblical qualifications that we looked at in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for those in leadership in the church not so that we can hold a select few to a higher standard of living for God's glory, but so that we know what life in Christ is supposed to look like. Our good Father, thank you for the glorious truths in our passage this morning. Thank you for sending us this letter from home. It's my prayer today that as we go out from here, your spirit would show us where we're holding on to idols and cause us to lay aside the sin and the weight that so easily besets us. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. In Jesus' glorious name, amen.